close to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. I'll meet you there in a little bit. But first of all, let me, uh, let me re- relay to you something that I read. And be careful don't, uh, about saying amen, hallelujah, or bah humbug, or anything else. I'm quoting from someone that normally I would never quote from, but I, I want to make a point. Jesse Jackson wrote, uh, When I first marched with, uh, with Martin, quote, When I first marched with Martin at Selma in 1965, I was only 23 and he was still only 36. Dr. King taught me that times of crisis were also times of opportunity, that politics could be redefined, society turned upside down. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because we have heard that over and over again from the Obama administration, and the truth of the matter is it's true. But, but, there is a big difference in finding yourself in a crisis and creating a crisis. A lot of times, people, evil men, will create a crisis as an opportunity to do evil. And that's nothing new because Satan has been doing that for centuries That's why for the past several weeks, I guess for about two months now, we've been talking about the devil's dangerous devices. Because he goes from creating one crisis to another all of the while trying to do what he can to defeat us and to destroy us, whether whether as individuals or as a church. And We've already talked about several of those devices, things that he uses for his evil purpose. We talked about deception, and that was our first one, and uh, the most obvious, I think, of all. We talked about diversion, we talked about doubt, we talked about discouragement, we talked about delay. And tonight, we're going to talk about the matter of dissension, I guess it would be all right if we would just read the Bible. I mean, you have to wonder nowadays because a lot of times you hear messages and go through entire services without anyone ever reading the Bible. So let's read just a little bit, and this sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Everybody, I'm sure, realizes that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And he says in verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions uh, among you. Now chapter 3 and verse number 3, Paul continues on this subject. He says, For ye are yet 
carnal. It's a horrible indictment against professing Christians, against the church. He says, you are yet carnal, for wherein there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and, and walk as men? Now, chapter 6 and verse number 6, and again, he continues on with this same line of thought. He says, But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Again, a terrible indictment against God's people. Chapter 11 and verse number 18. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and, and I partly believe it. Well, let's jump ahead to 2 Corinthians and all of the way to near the end. In chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm sure you realize there are other verses that we could have read, but for time's sake, this will establish the fact that Paul is writing about the seriousness of dissension in the church. And so he says in chapter 12 and verse number 24, I fear lest when I come... I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. Lest there be debates, envies, wrath, strife, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, and tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Well, it's obvious from all of these many verses that one of Paul's main reasons for writing to the Corinthians was to quell the dissension that existed. Some way, you know, we get it in our mind occasionally that those early churches really didn't have all of that many problems. In other words, we think of the early church as being, you know, a prime example of everything that we ought to be. Well, I've got news for you. That was not the case with a lot of these churches. And when we think about the writings of Paul especially, they were specifically designed to deal with the devil's deadly, dangerous devices. And that's what he's doing here in this letter. One of the reasons, however, that the early church did prosper so greatly is because there was unity in the church. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter number 2, and again, we're going to just skim through some verses and establish the fact that God blessed them as they were unified. Chapter 2, verse number 46. Oh, it's hard to read any of this chapter without reading all of it. It's just so rich and so wonderful to think about what God was doing. But it says in verse number 46, "...and they continuing daily with one accord..." You know, I've had people come and, uh, and suggest that we not have Wednesday night services. I've had members come and suggest that we 
that we stop having Sunday night services? My answer is always the same in both instances. And, uh, you know, I suspect that those same people eventually would get down to where they think we ought to just cancel all of the services. I don't know, but... Uh, uh, but I wonder what they would say if I got up and announced beginning tomorrow we're going to have daily services. Well, that'd be a shocker, wouldn't it? Well, continuing daily with one accord. <laughs> wow, that's even more shocking. Not only are we going to meet daily, we're going to be in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and that it eat thy meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Wow, that's amazing. Chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, and neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now chapter 5 and verse number 12 And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now chapter number 6. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, now you know something bad is about to happen, right? The church is growing. It's not just being added to now. It's multiplying. Some have guessed or estimated that the church in Jerusalem was at bare minimum 25,000 in membership. I don't have any idea, but uh, that's a pretty good-sized church. And God's blessing. Now notice what happens as the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, and the same please the whole multitude. I wonder how often that would happen today. Everybody is on the same page here. They're all pleased with the suggestion, and they chose Stephen. Now, this is the chapter where most of us, you know, we make reference to the deacons, and these are the men that were set apart and set aside that they might minister. Uh, I don't want to get off track here, but I think it needs to be said, and this is a good place to do it. We oftentimes, and this, by the way, this, this idea, I think, really got a firm foothold in some of the old Baptist churches many years ago to the point that in a lot of the Southern Baptist churches of years ago, it become just, 
It was, I mean, it was beyond tradition. It was a hard, fast rule that the leaders in the church were the deacons. I mean, the deacons were the ones that were to lead the church, and they didn't say it, but the pastor was just a puppet on the string, and they pulled the strings, and he jumped through the hoops and what have you. But let me tell you, that it was never meant to be that way whatsoever. The deacons are the servants in the church. I... Uh, I've got to be so careful what I say, but I appreciate someone. And just this last week, there was an instance where someone contacted a deacon about something, and the deacon referred them to the pastor. And by the way, in about 99% of the cases, that's the way that it ought to be. And, and you know, it's not a pride thing, but I think you just get things out of orders whenever you try to step around the pastor, you circumvent him and go to the deacon for a question on leadership. The deacons, if they're doing their job, they are at work in the church ministering in such a way that it frees up the pastor or the pastor so they can do the work of the ministry. And what they do is just as important as anybody else. But we've got to understand the purpose for their existence, the purpose of that office. Now, here's the wonderful thing. Whenever all of the church agreed to this, and when the deacons were deaking and the preachers were preaching and things were going as they ought to, the Bible tells us, verse 7, the Word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. So now it's multiplying greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So you see, when Satan could not... Destroy the church by persecution from without. What did he do? He stepped up the persecution from within. He began to create dissension in the church. And they're murmuring one against the other. And it was not until unity was restored that God was able to do what He really wanted to do. And that was to to win a lot more folks to the Lord. And it's noteworthy. Notice that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Man, I'm telling you what, that was some kind of a deal. Can you imagine winning over those old stubborn Jewish priests and winning them over to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That would have never happened had the church not been unified. Satan knows And he makes every effort to disrupt our unity because he knows that if he can divide us, he can destroy us. That makes this subject of great importance because we need to prepare ourselves against the attacks of Satan. We need to learn to work through our problems. If we don't, we're headed for serious trouble. Let me back up just a second. I said we need to learn to work through our problems. We'll never be able to eliminate all of the problems. We'll never be able to live a trouble-free life. There's always going to be different problems in churches that will develop with the passing of time. The sad thing is some people run from church to church to church without ever learning to work through their difficulties where they are. I've seen that again and again over the years. And up in the Cincinnati area where I pastored, there's quite a nest or a cluster of independent Baptist churches in that area. It's a stronghold. 
And there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, just say 25, 30 independent Baptist churches, probably more than that. But 25 or 30 that are in fairly good fellowship one with another. After you've been there a while and after you get to know the pastors and know the churches, this is what you begin to observe. Some of those people, many of the people that I met at some time over the last 20 years, they've been a member of like 15 or 20 of those churches. And then they go back to the one they left originally and start the circle all over again. And I partly blame the pastors for that. I think it would be good, and I've told them so in our in our preacher fellowship meetings, that some of them need to just set their foot down and say, this is nonsense. You go back to the church that you came from and you work through those problems. Because look, we're not talking here about big, major, cardinal, fundamental, doctrinal issues. That's usually not what divides churches. That's not what splits churches. It's dissension created over numerous things, but more likely than not, it'll boil down to the fact that somebody doesn't like someone's personality. Well, we need to learn to love each other whether we like particular traits about the other person or not. Well, with that being said, let's talk about dissension. Number one, the Bible demands the cessation of dissension. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 14. Now this is about as blunt and about as clear as you can get. Leave off contention. Proverbs 25 verse 8. Go not forth hastily to strive. Now New Testament, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. One of my... Favorites, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. It should not surprise us that in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 19, the Bible tells us that God hates the sowing of discord. I don't know about you, but if I know God hates something, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be guilty of that knowing how God feels about it. God hates discord. So how serious is it? Well, Romans chapter 16, verse 17, listen to this. Paul says, Mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. That's strong language, folks. But that is the scriptural way to deal with troublemakers. Now, please understand, this is not talking about someone who acted out of character, someone who, well, they did something wrong and so forth, but it's not the norm for them. They, By the way, any of us, when we're under the gun, when we're under pressure, Any of us are liable to act out of character and do things and say things and what have you that normally we would never do. So understand, when he talks about the troublemakers here and those that are creating divisions in the church, he's not talking about a one-time offender. He's not talking about somebody that, you know, just got tripped up somewhere. He's talking about troublemakers, people that, I mean, habitually, that's just their lifestyle. That's their manner of life. And he says, mark them, that is, take note of them and avoid them. 
Now, there are many other Scriptures that tell us that we're not to eat with them. That is, we can't even properly observe the Lord's Supper with people like that. And as you know, there are several Scriptures that demand that the church take action and that these members be disciplined. That is, that they're excommunicated from the fellowship of the church because they refuse to repent. Here's the bottom line. The ministry of the church is too important for us to let anyone destroy it because they don't get their way. Now, when I say anyone, I'm talking about me or you or anybody else. This church is more important than any of us. The corporate value of this church far exceeds the personal opinions of the members that make up the church. And so, as you can see, God has a lot to say about this matter of dissensions. And here we see that God is demanding the cessation of dissension. Secondly, the Bible describes the consequences of dissension. Now, as you know, we can't possibly cover all of the areas that are affected by dissension. We'd be here all night and still wouldn't get through with the list. But we can mention a, a few of the most important things. Would someone run over and get me a, a, a water, please? I went off without my handkerchief and I, uh, I, my mouth's getting dry. I need some water and uh, I seldom need that in the middle of a message, but uh, but I do tonight anyhow, so... Number one, it destroys fellowship. Boy, I, since the day that I was saved, I just I can't even begin to explain how precious Christian fellowship is to me. And by the way, when we talk about fellowship, we're talking about something more than just being together. We're talking about something more than, uh, than eating chicken together. So we're not just talking about a fellowship meal. That, that might be included. But the, the Greek word for fellowship implies sharing. In other words, it's the entwining of our lives together, that our lives are so knit together that we share our lives together. And that is, is precious. It's, in fact, it's crucial to our survival. But strife pulls us apart Strife ruins our relationships with one another. So it destroys fellowship. Secondly, it leads to sinful acts of revenge. I don't know of a better example of that than the story of Haman. And you'll remember that because of the dissension with the Jews that he had planned on hanging Mordecai. And I mean, he was determined, and through his trickery and what have you, he set it up that Mordecai was going to be found guilty of some trumped-up charges and that, and that he would hang him. Well, the bottom line is he ended up being hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai himself. It leads to sinful acts of revenge. You know, most of the time, whether we ever act it out or not, whether we put it in shoe leather or not, whether we tell anybody else about it or not, most of the time our human nature is such that when someone has really hurt us, 
there's some part of us that wants to get even with that person. Now, we might not slit their throat. We might not slit the tars on the, uh, on the car. Or we might not do a lot of, you know, bad things like that. But there's something in us that says, I'm going to get even. I'm going to get even. And it's amazing the things that people will do to show their displeasure. Uh, after you've been in the ministry a lot of years, it's easier to see that than it is for someone that's, well, that hasn't been in the ministry for a lot of years. And so, you know, up jumps the devil and there's a problem and you see the crisis develop and you begin to see people do things that you know from experience, you know it's nothing more than retaliation. They are getting their revenge. But they're doing it in such a way that nobody can make any lawful accusations against them. In other words, they can explain it away. Oh, well, you know, I didn't mean this or I didn't mean that, you know. And so it becomes a matter of judgment. And here's the sad part. Then they can use that against you. So that's why it's a whole lot better sometimes just to remain silent when those kind of charges are brought against you. Sinful acts of revenge, that leads or results in personal injury. As I just said, Haman was hung on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. So here is a man that's going to get revenge on another man, and it turns against him. They hanged him on the gallows prepared by Mordecai. When you stir up strife in the church, you might hurt other people. In fact, you will hurt other people, but eventually you're the one that's going to get hurt more than anybody else. You're going to get hurt. I mean, it's just, I, whether it's me or you, if we stir up strife in the Lord's church, we might seem to have escaped any kind of correction from the Lord. It might seem that we got by with it, but we never sin successfully. Never. So it results in personal injury. But it also distracts us from duty. You know, the perfect example of that is King Saul. Here is King Saul, and you imagine his responsibility. I mean, here's a man who is the king, the king over God's people. Here is a man that seemingly had all of the best qualities that a man could have, even his physical stature. Everything about him pointed to success. But he failed. He failed because this scrawny little shepherd boy killed the giant and got credit for it, and now they're writing songs about their new hero, David. And Saul just can't take it. And all of a sudden, Saul is distracted from his responsibilities as the king. Now imagine this. He leaves his throne and goes out on the hillside day and night. He's out there searching in caves for David, trying to kill David. Now you and I might never go to that extreme in responding to those situations where there's dissension and we're smack dab in the middle of it. We might not threaten to kill someone we might, might not even entirely drop out of church and just focus on that problem, but many times it will result in us just half-heartedly going through the motions of serving God. 
Because let's face it, it's really difficult to keep going and to keep serving God with a good attitude when you're going through something like that. It distracts us from our duty. And again, I remind you that our duty as a member of this church, our ministry as a church is so very important, we cannot afford to let dissension hinder what we're doing. That, that song we sang a while ago, Tim said uh, he, he, he didn't know the song, but I, I, I know it quite well from many years ago. That's... That's one of those songs that used to at the camp meetings and the old timers, especially in Kentucky and Tennessee, that's one of those songs that they used. And uh, some of those like lead me to some soul today. And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, we don't have choruses like that anymore. I mean, I know very few, if any, that speak about having a burning desire to see the lost saved. But that's what it's all about, and what could be more important than that? That when I allow myself to get distracted because of dissension, it just takes the heart out of what I'm trying to do for the Lord. Next, it prevents us from worshiping God. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 5. This is probably the most familiar portion related to this subject. Chapter 5 and verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. In other words, it's not that you've got something against him, but you get there, you're going to worship God, and you remember he's got something against me. And notice what he says, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First, first, first be reconciled to thy brother. Is it important? Absolutely. He says, in essence, that we cannot even worship God if there is dissension between us and others. 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 18. First of all, when you are come together in the church, I hear that there will be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. We read that a while ago, but listen. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other after other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now let's, let's get closer to home. We're looking at dissension between Believers in the church. But in 1 Peter chapter number 3, I want you to notice here Peter is talking about the relationship of the husband and the wife. 
And it gives some very clear instructions and a warning here. Chapter number 3 and verse number 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. We need to understand what that means. It means to give intelligent consideration to. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. But get this, that your prayers be not hindered. I think we all agree that prayer is a part of our worship. I think we would all agree that a great deal depends upon prayer But understand what he's saying, that if we have a wrong attitude toward others, that we cannot have a right relationship with God. And here you have a husband and a wife, and let's say in route to the church, they get into some kind of an argument. Of course, that's never happened to any of us. Never, never. But let's just suppose, let your imagination run wild. And boy, the air is thick, and the dissension, I mean, you, you, well, it's bad. But you get to church, and you know people are looking, so you put on your best Sunday go-to-meeting smile, and you straighten up your tie, and you walk into the auditorium, and you start shaking hands and smiling and greeting one another and and just pretending like there's not a problem in the world. But there's a serious problem as far as God is concerned. Because He tells us our prayers are going to be hindered. If our prayers are hindered, our worship's going to be ineffective. Think about it. Think about you or me or any of us being guilty of hindering the worship service. And it happens. Let me give you just one more. It can result in the total ruin if it's not corrected. I think about Israel and and its division into the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, and and we think about the dissension that existed between them. Look, this, this is God's chosen people. These are the people that were special to God. They they were considered to be God's treasure. And because of the dissension, the kingdom is divided and ultimately destroyed. If it could happen to the kingdom, it can happen in a church. That's what makes this so serious because... If we don't correct dissension when it raises its ugly head, it can and it will destroy the church. Now, I I know we all like to glory in the good qualities of Lakeway Baptist Church. And by the way, I think we all should always be mindful of the good qualities of the church. You know, isn't it strange that, you know, when everything's going our way, it's my church or our church. But when we don't get our way, it's that church. And you you always know there's a serious problem when people begin referring to their church as that church. Well, the important thing is not that it's your church, my church, or that church. The important thing is it's the Lord's church. 
And boy, we're playing with fire if we do something to hinder it. Something that ultimately would lead to its destruction. So we look at those good qualities that exist in the church and we, we rejoice about that and we should, but let's don't ever get so proud, so cocky that we suppose that what happened to a certain church, let's say across town, couldn't happen here. Let me tell you, nearly overnight, we could find ourselves in a state of turmoil such as we never imagined. I'm warning you, I'm telling you, I pray to God that it never happens, but I'm telling you it can happen. And if we don't acknowledge the fact that it could happen right here, then we're headed for trouble. We've got to ever be on guard realizing that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Do not suppose that we are constantly on safe ground. We're not. The devil is fighting and the devil's going to do everything he can to divide us and to destroy us. Number three, not only does the Bible demand the cessation of dissension, and not only does it describe the consequences of it, but it declares the causes of dissension. And again, there's a lot of things that could be mentioned that we won't mention, but there are some things that the Lord alludes to that's very clear. Number one not necessarily in order of importance, but number one is hatred. Listen to what Solomon wrote. Proverbs 10, verse 12, Hatred stirreth up strifes. That's in the plural. Not just one, it gets a lot of things going. Hatred. Now you... You would think that surely there's no hatred among, among God's people. That surely, you know, we, uh, that we've grown spiritually to the point. Surely we've reached the place that, that, that we would never be guilty of hating someone. Don't kid yourself. It's amazing. What an awful spiritual condition that we can find ourselves in. If we don't stay on top of things and keep our sins confessed up, if we don't keep short accounts with God, then we're going to get ourselves in trouble. Hatred. Anger. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two. An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Hatred, anger, number three, pride. Proverbs 13, verse 10, only by pride cometh contention. Proverbs 28, 25, he that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. But notice that first one there. Only by pride comes contention. That is to say that if we could get all of the pride out of the church, there would never be any contention in the church. Which tells me that we're always going to have a problem with the matter of pride. It is the very thing that caused Lucifer to fall. Only by pride comes contention. And stop and think about it. Normally, when we're in an argument, whether it's our spouse or our parents or the pastor or whoever it is, and we get in an argument somewhere along the line, pride always gets involved in it. 
Somebody might say something and, you know, whatever we feel that our pride has been wounded. Now, we don't use that word. We don't say that I have so much pride in my heart that what you said or what you did, that that offended me. We don't say that. We don't like to use that word because we don't want to confess that we are proud. But by virtue of the fact that contention is there, assures us that pride is there. And again, pride is something that God hates. So we have anger, we have hatred, pride, gossip. I, I don't have time to read all of these verses, and I don't think I need to. You're familiar enough with the Bible to know that the Bible speaks of this in numerous places. Gossip. I've noticed over the years that a lot of times when someone would do something wrong, I'm talking about committing some sin that could hurt the church, In many instances, the thing that hurt the church the most was the gossip about the sin instead of the sin itself. And I've also noticed that a lot of times the person who was guilty of committing the sin would have been restored to fellowship. In other words, they would have made things right with God. But the gossip about their sin made it might near impossible for them To do that. Gossip about the shortcomings of others. Here's another one. Meddling in other people's business. Meddling in other people's business. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter number 26 and notice verse number 17. Proverbs 26 and verse number 17. He that passeth by and meddleth the strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh the dog by the ears. Well, that ought to be real easy to understand. I mean, you hear, you picture two pit, ball, pit bulls out here fighting, and, and so you decide you're going to break up the fight, and you go up there and you grab one by the ear. Well, you know what's going to happen. He's going to grab you. It's a whole lot better to just let the fight go on and stay out of it. And a lot of times we get get it in our mind that, you know, when somebody else has got a problem that we've got to get involved in it, and we start meddling in their business, and before we know it, we, we not only maybe hurt someone in the process, we get hurt in the process, but dissension develops. I, You know, it's one thing for us to take an interest in other people and to express our concern. That's well and good. We we need to do that. But we've got to be very careful that we don't get to just meddling in people's business. Trying to trying to find out what's going on. I listen, I, I know people like that that and I can see it coming a mile off. And I've had people to pump me, trying to, trying to get me to, you know, let them know what's going on. And some people don't have a problem with this. They've learned a long time ago it's better to mind their own business and not get involved in others. But there's some people that they've just got this hang up. They want to be up to date and in on everything that's going on in the church. And by the way, it's not needful for them to know everything that's going on in the church. Don't meddle in other people's business. There's another one that we could talk about. I'll just mention it. Paul does. And that's senseless questions. Senseless questions. 
And again, some people just take delight in doing that. They think they've got to question everything. I, I, I've known some men over the years that they just felt like that, well, like one woman said about a particular man that was a member of this church years ago, this is what she said, and she was commending him. She, she thought he was wonderful. And she said, yeah, he's the conscience of the, conscience of the church. What she really meant is the church couldn't do anything without this guy offering some opposing opinion or idea and felt like it was his divine responsibility to call into question everything that happened in the church. You couldn't make a, you couldn't make a simple decision whether we're going to buy, you know, uh, one or two rows of toilet paper without him raising some question about it. Well, you know, brethren, and isn't it amazing if you ever notice these guys usually got two voices. You know, they got their regular voice and then they've got that other voice. And it gets a little bit deeper, you know, and you know, boy, they're getting serious now. And, uh, brethren, maybe we need to give some thought about this. And Senseless questions. <laughs> I like what a fellow I met years ago. He was a motivation speaker by the name of Charles Jones, but he became known and became famous as an author and a speaker as Charles Tremendous Jones. And he was the fellow that started the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Well, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good way to put it, but there's a lot to be said for just keeping things simple. We don't have to raise a question about everything under the sun. Lastly, lastly, the Bible defines the cure for dissension in the church. Let's go back to Romans chapter 14. I know we alluded to these verses earlier, but... Let's just let the Bible speak for itself instead of me telling you what it says. Just let it speak. Chapter 14, and notice what Paul says in verse number 19, I think it is. Chapter 14, verse 19. He says, Let us therefore follow the things which make for peace, and things where one may edify, that is, build up another. Now, later on, look, here he's telling us what we need to do as individuals, follow those things that make for peace. But then he speaks to the church about what the church does if we don't do that. And he tells us in no uncertain terms that the church, verse 17 of chapter 16, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them... For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly by good words and fast speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Well, it's very clear what he expects the church to do if we don't follow things that make for peace. One more, one more section, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 and verse number 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, 
with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we would do what the Bible says, we could avoid dissension. We could live in peace. I can't control what other people do. Neither can you. I remember a time that I thought as a parent that I could, if I wanted to, I could, I could control my kids till I woke up one morning and we looked around and, and one of them was gone and we didn't know where. And we learned in a hurry that you can't control people and you can't change people. I don't care how bad you want it to happen, you cannot do it. You cannot force change. As right as you are, you can't make people change and you cannot control people. And the fact of the matter is there's some people that have just decided they kind of like being as mean as a junkyard dog and you can't do anything about it. We can't control them, but we can control ourselves and our response to what they do. And that's what God expects from us. As much as is possible, He says, we're to live peaceably with one another. We often think about dissension created by those that are our enemies or those that have done wrong, and we want to put all the blame on their doorstep. In reality, our biggest enemy is ourselves more than anybody else. Will other people hurt you? You bet they will. And whether you realize it or not, sooner or later you're going to end up hurting someone else. And we need to stop trying to control each other and focus in on keeping ourselves under control. And the only way we can do that is to give God control. And that's what we mean talking about being filled with the Spirit, that we are under His control. Because if we're not under His control, we're out of control. If you're here tonight and there is dissension between you and anyone, whether they're here or whether there's someone else or whatever, if there is dissension between you and others, the Lord's church is too important to just ignore it. You know, to hide our head in the sand, pretend while it'll go away. Now, by the way, I, sometimes time can work in our favor. Some people make the mistake of thinking that they've got to settle everything today. And, and I'm telling you, that's good in theory, but it doesn't always work. Because sometimes when our emotions are running high... Our blood pressure is up. The veins in our neck are bulging. And we're just a, we're an emotional wreck. And I'm telling you that sometimes it's better to just back off and leave it alone for then and to work on it later. But eventually, eventually we've got to work on it. Eventually we've got to deal with it. And, and that's why the Lord tells us that if we... We go to the altar, we bring our gift, and there we remember, my brother has ought against me. 
He says, just leave your gift there. Forget about trying to worship God and you go to that brother and do what you can to bring about reconciliation. Too much at stake for us to just ignore this deadly device of the devil. In his second inaugural speech, it's March the 4th, 1865, just a little over a month before he would be assassinated, Abraham Lincoln uttered these words. Many of you could quote them, I know. With malice toward none and charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in. I don't know why we couldn't apply that to the Lord's church, do you? I think we ought to. With malice toward none, charity for all. The psalmist said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We talked this morning a little bit about grieving God. But we can thrill the heart of God by taking whatever steps are necessary to be of one mind, one with another, to eliminate all of the dissension that's trying to pull us apart, and to keep our focus on our oneness in the Lord Jesus Christ. It pays, and it pays big. Let's bow. Father, forgive us of the times that we fail. Not only do we fail you, but the times that we fail others. And help us to be mindful that when we do that, ultimately we're failing our, ourselves. Our expectation of our behavior ought to be better than that. It ought to be bigger than that. Help us to keep Christ as the goal for which we strive. Help us to do what we can to emulate His example to to follow Him in all that we do. And, and Lord, whenever we think about how He deals with us as dirty, rotten, filthy, guilty sinners, and to think that He's willing to forgive us, that He's willing to love us unconditionally, how dare we ever refuse to forgive and to love somebody else. So help us and teach us tonight. Enable us to do everything that's within our power to keep this church in perfect unity one with the other, that we might be everything that you would have us to be and accomplish your will. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. As we stand and as we sing, maybe tonight you just need to come and to pray about a matter. Maybe tonight you need to go to some brother or sister or maybe your husband or your wife. But if there's dissension there, we need to deal with it. Don't ignore it while we sing.
Brother Richard Wilson, would you lead us in prayer tonight, please?